Well, here's a Peanuts comic strip. Charlie Brown and Lucy are engaged in a philosophical conversation. It's a heavy conversation. Lucy is explaining the mysteries of life. She says, life is like a deck chair, Charlie Brown. Some place it so they can see where they're going. Some place it so that they can see where they've been. And some place it so they can see where they are at present. Charlie Brown responds, I can't even get mine unfolded. Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is having difficulty unfolding his deck chair. He is disappointed with life. He is disillusioned by life. I've heard it put like this. We start out life expecting to discover a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but all we find is a bowl of salty liver soup. You see, Solomon has tasted life, but he can't get used to the bitter aftertaste. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we embark with Solomon on a search for fulfillment. What is meaningful in life? And over and over, he asks the question, what's the point of it all anyway? Well, brace yourself for Solomon's answers, (laughs) or the lack thereof. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 begins, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This Hebrew term translated preacher is a unique word. It's found nowhere else in Scripture. It takes the word kahal, which means to gather or assemble, and turns it into a brand new word, kihileth, which means the leader of a group or one who addresses the assembly. You know, it's interesting when the Hebrew gets translated into Greek, the word for assembly is ekklesia which in our English New Testament ends up being translated church. So Ecclesiastes is the leader of the ecclesia. In essence, he's the preacher. And notice the preacher is identified. He's the son of David and the king of Jerusalem. This narrows our options down to one man. His name was Solomon. And David's kid Solomon was king of Jerusalem at its zenith. In the middle of the 10th century BC, Israel was the world's lone superpower. Solomon was the wealthiest and smartest and most powerful man on the planet. People would come from all over the world to marvel at Solomon's wealth and at his wisdom. Solomon wrote three books of the Bible. The Song of Solomon was written when he was young and in love. Proverbs was written in his middle years at the height of his greatness. Whereas Ecclesiastes was probably written later in his life, after Solomon had strayed from God. Remember, Solomon married pagan wives and embraced their idols. He turned his back on God, and he tried to find meaning in life apart from God. And Ecclesiastes is Solomon's report. The king travels down the path of science and philosophy. He turns to pleasure, then to achievement. He moves on to religion and materialism and fame and power. He contemplates the value of hard work and long life and a large family and a good name. He turns over every rock possible looking for some meaning in life. One Hebrew scholar writes, No era of Israel's history was richer in possibilities for various pleasures and no person in a better position to make the most of them than Solomon. 
The king tried everything folks are prone to think, folks are prone to try in an attempt to make themselves happy if they only had the money. Well, Solomon, he could drop the cash. But in the end, he found nothing that truly satisfied him. And he states his conclusion at the outset, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, man. All is vanity. Here is a key word in Ecclesiastes. It occurs 37 times. In Hebrew, it's the word hevel. The English translation is vanity. It means vapor or mist. It implies emptiness, hollowness, the lack of fulfillment. It's another way of saying, why bother? Who cares? Why roll out of the sack and get out of bed? Nothing really matters. Here's a great way of saying it. Whatever. That's vanity. Life is vanity. Life is nothing more than a puff of breath on a cold day. It's like the steam. You wipe off your glasses on a humid afternoon. I like this definition of vanity. It's whatever is left after you break a soap bubble. You see, life without God is like chasing after soap bubbles. Little kids at a birthday party, they chase and they chase the bubbles. But the instant they capture their prize, it pops between their fingers. And they're left with nothing to show for their efforts. Sadly, adults play the same game. Life is an inescapable maze. Every path Solomon takes turns out to be a dead end. And Solomon questions the futility of life. In verse 3, he says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And here's another key phrase in Ecclesiastes. It occurs 29 times. It's the phrase, under the sun. You see, in his quest for meaning, Solomon limits his search to things under the sun. Not heavenly things, mind you, but earthly things. His boundaries are here below, the material, the physical, the terrestrial. The king kept God out of the equation. Solomon tries to make sense of life without God. And Solomon is not the only man who has conducted this experiment. There are other brilliant, wealthy men who've tried and yet have come to the same conclusions. George Bernard Shaw, he once moaned, Life is a series of inspired follies. There's a French proverb that reiterates life's frustration. It goes, life is an onion. When it's peeled, there's nothing left, and one cries the whole time peeling it. Here's an optimistic view of life. The Jewish rabbi Sholem Alekman wrote, life is a blister on top of a tumor and a boil on top of that. Philosopher Joseph Crutch He writes, a man's life has no more meaning than the life of the humblest insect crawling from one annihilation to another. William Cowper described life apart from God as the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old in drawing up nothing. Henry Thoreau wrote, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. And of course, that great philosopher Charlie Brown once concluded, I have a new philosophy. I am only going to dread one day at a time. (laughs) 
if all there is to life is what's under the sun, then I too would be pessimistic. But Jesus tells us that that's not all there is to life. On several occasions, Jesus spoke of coming down from above. There is life above the sun. Jesus spoke of eternal life, of spiritual life, of life above the sun. And this is what makes life worth living. Jesus tells us in John 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Because of Jesus, life is not all vanity. Life is not worthless. Life can be satisfying and fulfilling, but it only takes that shape when we look above the sun, when we get above the things that are material and physical, when we look to Jesus and the life he can offer us. Look under the sun and life's a drag. Look to the sun, S-O-N, above the sun, S-U-N, and earthly life takes on a whole new meaning. You see, the world we occupy is a fallen world. It's been scarred and marred by sin. Here's what's happened. We've cut ties with the Creator. And the result has been endless frustration. But Jesus reconnects us to God on the cross. He reconnected the tether between us and God. And as we grow in our relationship with God and relate our lives to God, here's what happens. The value of everything else in life gets marked up. Everyday existence takes on eternal significance. H.G. Wells words it this way. He says, until a man has found God and been found by God, he begins at no beginning. He works to no end. He may have friendships, his partial loyalties, his scraps of honor, but all these things fall into place and life falls into place only with God. And this is the truth Solomon discovers and he teaches us here in Ecclesiastes. He continues in verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. Solomon compares here the temporal nature of man with the permanence of nature. And it's frustrating. Think about it. The trees in your front yard are going to outlive you. How encouraging is that? I mean, our lives are mere blips on the radar screen of history. You see, Solomon views life as a treadmill. Every generation takes its turn trying to get somewhere. But then it gives up and gives way to the next. Verse 5 tells us the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. In other words, nature runs like clockwork. The sun rises, and then the sun sets. The wind comes, and then the wind blows and goes. Life goes on, and you and I have little bearing on the grand scheme of things. Life goes on with us or without us. He notices all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Solomon becomes a meteorologist. He observes the evaporation cycle. Rain fills the rivers. Rivers in turn fill the oceans. Oceans evaporate and water returns to earth as rain. And this is just one example. All of life is cyclical. Here's Solomon's point. There's motion, but there's no meaning. 
There's motion in life, but there's no meaning to life. Mankind is trapped in this monotonous rut called life. Generations come and go. The actors are always changing, but the stage and the script and the storyline remain the same. You know, you sense this when you go to Europe. If you've ever had the opportunity to go to Europe, you really sense this. You know, American houses are at most 100 years old. Uh, you, You find some of those up north. Down south here, they were all burned to the ground by Sherman. But, but occasionally you'll find an older house. And you, and you go to that house, you can appreciate it. Maybe one, two, maybe three generations have lived in that house. But when you go to Europe, the buildings there, some of them are a thousand years old. And you realize that generation after generation after generation have lived in these homes. The individual person is constantly reminded that he's just one of a succession, a whole train of people that have been here and lived and died and passed on. You come to the conclusion that we're just all drips in the sea of humanity. And this is why people long for something new and for something novel. For when we come up with something we think is new, it makes us feel special. It distinguishes us from other generations. He says in verse 8, All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You see, our world loves to latch on to the latest fad or the latest fashion because it's our way of trying to beat back life's monotony. We say, oh, this is new. Wow, this has never been. That makes us somehow special. Solomon confesses, though, in verse 10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. You know, when you get excited about a new song you hear or a new invention or a new gadget or a new style or a new thought or a new cause, just remember that there have been new innovations before. And usually it's the same stuff recycled over and over You know, I'm reminded of this whenever one of my kids sports a fad or a fashion that was popular when I was young. Oh, Dad, skateboarding is so cool. We used to skateboard down the hill when I was 10 years old, you know. Just hang on to your old clothes long enough and they'll eventually be back in style. Old fashion becomes vintage. The Greek philosopher Marcus Aurelius wrote, They that come after us will see nothing new. They who went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. Here's another way of putting it. The ancients have stolen all our best ideas. (laughs) Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after I mean, the reason we get so excited over something that's novel, it's because of our ignorance of history. We don't check the minutes of the last meeting. History's so repetitive. And this makes the promise of Jesus in Revelation 21, verse 5, so amazing and so appealing. For there he says, Behold, I make all things new. The monotony of this life won't be broken. We won't escape fully the rut of life completely until Jesus returns to earth.
But when he comes, he promises to make all things new. Verse 12, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Solomon made it his quest to search out meaning. He viewed it as his duty. And there he, in the, here he states his conclusion. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon was the wisest man on earth, yet in searching for fulfillment, Apart from God, he proved a fool. Under the sun, life is just soap bubbles. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Listen to this verse in the Living Bible. What is wrong cannot be righted. It is water over the dam, and there is no use thinking of what might have been. He's saying every life is full of regrets. We're all victims of unrealized possibilities, of missed opportunities. It's frustrating. Solomon reflects on his own frustrations. He says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more we learn, the more conscious we become of our ignorance. You know, the old proverb is true. A wise man is never happy. It reminds me of the father who bought his son the perfect Christmas present. He he thought that this would teach the child a life lesson. It would prepare him for life. It was a puzzle whose pieces didn't fit. That no matter how you twisted the pieces, no matter how you assembled them, they didn't connect. You see, this is the problem with life. When you try to sort life out without God, nothing connects. Nothing makes sense. The pieces don't fit. As one person said, life goes on. I just forgot why. In chapter 2, Solomon searches for purpose in pleasure. He says, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. Solomon became the Hebrew hedonist. For a time, he lived for pleasure alone. If it felt good, he did it. He grabbed for all the gusto. He enjoyed the high life. You've heard the Reebok tag, life is short, play hard. Well, Solomon played hard. The Bible tells us the old guy had 700 wives And 300 concubines. That means a different woman every night. Solomon's palace was like the Playboy Mansion. It was a perpetual party. And then he adds, I said of laughter, madness. And of mirth, what does it accomplish? Solomon tried entertainment. He he indulged in comedy, he says. Laughter and mirth. He hired Leno and Letterman to do stand-up for him every night. He called me, but I was booked. I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their life. Solomon became a connoisseur of fine wines. 
We're not talking the cheap stuff, man. This guy was rich. He knocked down $50,000 bottles like they were soft drinks. With Solomon's unlimited salary, his parties made the strip in Las Vegas look like a two-bit carnival. He partied hardy, but he found no peace in his pleasure. He found no satisfaction in his sensuality. He found no contentment in his cravings. And if ever there was a people that were trying to duplicate Solomon's pursuits, it would be 21st century America. For we too are a pleasure-crazed society. Food. We've got a network now, the food network. And wine, and sex, and entertainment, and resorts, and spas, and casinos, and holidays, and sports, and massages. And we spare no expense to try to fill the hollowness inside. And yet Solomon is saying when the party's over, there's still an aching emptiness. You see, here's an analysis. Here's a nutshell analysis of today's values. We live in a day when anything goes, but nothing lasts. Doesn't that sum it up? Anything goes, but nothing lasts. Boy, the same could be said for Solomon. You know, when the woman at the well came seeking water, Jesus told her, you'll thirst again. And we would do well to turn that phrase into a plaque and hang it over every source of modern day pleasure. Sex, you'll thirst again. Sports, you'll thirst again. Money, you'll thirst again. Fame, you'll thirst again. Drugs, you'll thirst again. You may get it, but it won't be enough. You'll thirst again. Jesus alone is the soul's thirst quencher. Nothing else can satisfy. Pleasure is fun for a time, but when the party is over, life is still vanity. You wake up with a hangover and in an empty house... And speaking of houses, here's another place where Solomon looked for satisfaction. In verse 4, he he describes his crib for MTV. He says, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I mean, he took up architecture and construction. He started working in the yard to try to find meaning. And yet it too was vanity. You know, 1 Kings chapter 7 tells us that Solomon spent seven years building God's house, the temple. But he spent 13 years building his own house. His palace was unlike any other building in Jerusalem. Its gardens, its fountains, its porticos were spectacular. Solomon's palace was the ultimate dream house. And in verse 7, Solomon talks about his posse. You know, I'm sure the king thought that if he had enough people around him, waiting on him hand and foot, then surely he'd be happy. Verse 7, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Some 30,000 servants catered to Solomon's every whim. He had publicists and personal chefs and masseuses and drivers and secretaries and trainers and money managers and event planners. You know, you can be around people. You can be surrounded by people. 
and yet remain absolutely lonely if you lack a relationship with God. He says, yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Man, I had cattle. That means he ate prime rib every night. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. King Solomon was probably not just the richest man on earth at his time, but the richest man that has ever been. The richest man in history. He says, I acquired male and female singers and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. Apparently, Solomon loved music. And so he tried to find meaning in music. He, he even kept a band around. You know, if life ever started getting boring, he'd just call in Dave Matthews, you know, to, to set up and play a little bit for him. Or you too, or Taylor Swift, you know, depending on what kind of music he was into at the time. You know, he just loved music. And so he always had a band on hand. Always had his little private concerts. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He had no restraint. Solomon was so wealthy that his eyes were never bigger than his budget. This meant he had no boundaries. He said, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Neither money nor morality restrained him. This was the ultimate hedonist. If anyone could ever find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and happiness in the things of this world, it had to be Solomon because he had everything available to him. And yet, he says, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and this was my reward from all my labor. Check this out. Pleasures, palaces, posses, prime rib dinners, Taylor Swift concerts, you would think this man would be happy. But now listen to his heartbreak. He says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. He said, Life's a mess, man. I've had it all. I've been to the mountaintop, and I'm telling you, meaning... And purpose in this life, satisfaction in this life is as elusive as trying to catch the wind in your hand and hold on to it. It's meaningless. Solomon says that living under the sun is like looking for meaning in all the wrong places, man. Sounds like the businessman who once confessed. He says, for years, I've been climbing a ladder of success that was leaning against the wrong wall. How frustrating is that? And yet this was Solomon's confession. Verse 12, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Here Solomon is thinking of a legacy. You know, perhaps leaving a legacy is what life is all about. But what mark can a man make that really, you know, hasn't been made before? I mean, what mark on history can we really make that, that won't also be made by our, the predecessor? He says, then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. Solomon concedes that the wise man and the fool have more in common than we'd like to admit. 
Think about it. The rain waters the fool's yard just like it waters the wise guy's yard. The tornado wipes out the house of the wise man just like it wipes out the house of the fool. You know, we read the Proverbs and we realize that there was a time when Solomon sought wisdom. But now he acknowledges that wisdom is not always an advantage. And it's frustrating to him. He says, so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Where did wisdom really get me? If the stock market crashes, everybody's portfolio tanks. All the analysis goes out the window. So what's the point of wisdom, he says. Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Verse 16, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as a fool? That should encourage you tonight. <laughs> You're just going to die like the fool dies and you'll be forgotten. You know, you, hey, you think you're important, you know, stick your finger in the glass of water and and then pull it out real quick and see how long that takes for that hole to fill back in. That's about how long you'll be remembered, how long you'll be missed right there. Life is frustrating. Solomon valued wisdom. But on closer scrutiny, what difference is there in the long run between the foolish man and the wise man? Both men die. Both men end up forgotten. I mean, you work year after year. You earn a doctorate degree. You're really wise. But for what? I mean, 10 years after you die, maybe 10 months after you die, you're no more remembered than the high school graduate. Can you name the 25th president of the United States? I'll bet you at the time that was a really big deal, becoming president of the United States. You can't even remember his name. We don't even know his name. Can you remember who won the 1953 World Series? That was a big deal at the time. Only David can remember That, because, that was because he was watching it on TV. <laughs> or can you tell me who founded GM? Or who invented the ballpoint pen? Those are, those are pretty significant uh, developments. Hey, we, we all, we, we live, we die, we're forgotten. That's us. Verse 17. Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. I mean, we work and we work and we work. And at the end of the day, there are few, if any, lasting rewards. So what's the point? Why chase soap bubbles? Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. I mean, here's another frustration. You work your whole life. You endure and you take risks and you navigate changes in the marketplace and you avoid disaster time after time and you invest your blood and your sweat and your tears into building this business only to leave it to your kid who might just throw it all away in one act of foolishness. It's frustrating. What's with that? 
He says, therefore, I turned my heart and despised all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. I got to tell you, this is how I felt on Natalie's wedding day. It was so frustrating. Here I am. I had spent 21 years developing this wonderful young woman. It wasn't all me. Kathy had something to do with it. The Lord had a lot to do with it. But we had spent 21 years developing this beautiful, wonderful young woman. Cultivate, I, was, I cultivated with her this delightful friendship that meant so much to me. Only to have her grow up. Move two hours away. And live with a guy I barely knew. And, and now I see her infrequently. And I got to tell you, that's the pits. If that's how life works, that's the pits. It's frustrating. Verse 21. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. And Solomon knew this firsthand. For for you remember the story. He leaves his kingdom to a foolish son by the name of Rehoboam who tears into the kingdom that Solomon had helped unify. Rehoboam acts foolishly. He listens to the snotty-nosed rich kids who don't know anything, but he listens to them. And and in, in response to their counsel, he hikes the taxes in the land, and it causes the northern ten tribes to rebel against Jerusalem and Judah in the south, and it splits the kingdom, and it stays that way for over 200 years. He says, for what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. <laughs> Life is so frustrating. You spend your night, you spend your days working like a dog. But then you spend your nights, you stay, you're staying up late. You're planning and you're plotting and you're praying. You're trying to keep your business afloat. You're trying to raise your kids. You, you know, you stay up late a lot when you've got teenagers at home. I mean, you stay up late a lot. And, and then they grow up, they leave you, they forget about you. You know, life goes on. Are, are you, you turn this business that you've built, you know, you turn it over to your spoiled brat kid who lacks the wisdom to sustain what you've started. Everything you've worked for gets squandered. This is life. Think of John Harvard. John Harvard was a dedicated Christian. John Harvard believed that his Bible was the word of God. John Harvard donated his vast fortune to the university that now bears his name. He wanted to train men who would go out and propagate the Christian faith. And yet, sadly, today, Harvard University has become the bastion of humanism and liberal philosophy. I mean, John Harvard must be rolling over in his grave. Now, you would think that Solomon's frustrations with pleasure and with palaces and with posses and with prime rib dinners and with Taylor Swift concerts, you would think that his frustration with life under the sun would cause him to be an ascetic, 
that he would resort to a life of asceticism, of denial. That he would encourage us to renounce all pleasure. To minimize our possessions. But notice this. He takes the opposite approach. Verse 24. He says, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink. And that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Remember the scope of Solomon's search. Under the sun, he says, there's nothing but just looking at life under the sun. There's nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy your life. You know, 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 tells us that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Hey, pleasure isn't sinful. I hope you know God created life to be pleasurable. Good music, steak dinners, good friends, sex with your spouse, walks in the park. These are all blessings that are meant to be enjoyed. Here's the problem. We expect more out of life than life can deliver. We put too much pressure on these things. We're trying to squeeze meaning out of these things, and they were never intended to give us meaning. Here's the point. Life is not God. And we have tastes that only God can satisfy. Solomon is saying that God wants us to enjoy life under the sun. That's why he created it. But when it comes to true fulfillment, we have to look above the sun. Soul satisfaction is found in the blesser, not the blessings. And yet that doesn't mean that the blessings of life are evil. The pleasures and the possessions, the food and the drink that God provides us should be enjoyed. Go home. Eat a steak tonight. Get in a hot tub. Pour you a big old Coca-Cola. Listen to some nice music. Sip some coffee with your wife. Enjoy life. God meant for it to be enjoyed. Our frustration comes, though, when we try to squeeze from life more than it offers. When we try to look at life as a, as a final pursuit and think that life under the sun is all there is, that's not true. And that's what leads to frustration. Don't take your life under the sun so seriously, Solomon is telling us. As if we'll suffer some great loss if we don't get all that we want. Don't worry about it, man. It won't satisfy you anyway. So what if you never get that dream house? Once you get it, it won't satisfy you. Just take the pressure off. You got to get above the sun to find true me- the true meaning of life. Reinhold Messner was a famous mountain climber. Messner was the first man to climb Mount Everest without an oxygen bottle. And when asked the proverbial question that all mountain climbers get asked, why did you do it? Messner responded, because at the top, all the lines converge. This is the way it is with life. Only in God do all the lines intersect. Do all the pieces come together. All of life finds its purpose only as we relate it to God. Well, chapter 2 closes. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? 
For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Once there was an insurance agent who got a phone call one night. A woman asked him, do you sell homeowner's insurance? He says, well, of course. She asked, well, can I buy it over the phone? The insurance agent said, no, I'm sorry. I'll first have to come out and I'll have to see your house. She replied, well, you better hurry. It's on fire. (laughs) Timing is a crucial element in life. And Solomon realizes the importance of timing. Just as God established seasons of the year, there are also seasons in life. One of the keys to success is recognizing the season that you're in. Chapter 3 begins to everything. There is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant. And there's a time to pluck what is planted. In other words, there's a time to sow. And then there's a time to reap. There's a time to be born. And you don't know what time that is. They give you a due date, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean anything. It's just just kind of a placebo. And there's a time to die. You don't know when that time is either. Could be tonight. You never know. God knows. He's established a time. Time to be born. Time to die. Time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill. Hope you notice here, God is not a pacifist. There is a time to kill. Capital punishment is a time to kill. Self-defense could be a time to kill. Just wars are a time to kill. Mosquitoes at a picnic are a time to kill. And a time to heal. You've heard it said, time heals all wounds. And indeed it does. I like the striking worker at the picket line. He was holding up this placard that read, time heals all wounds. Time and a half heals them faster. (laughs) There's also a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. You know, there's a graveyard on the Mount of Olives and on top of each of the tombs are a pile of stones. And I've been told that there's an Israeli law that forbids flowers on a grave. And here's why. Flowers are expensive. Cut flowers on a grave would discriminate against the poor. Only the rich would be able to express their sorrow and their respect for the dead. But stones, (laughs) Israel is the rockiest place on the planet. There are rocks everywhere. Thus, a grave in Israel with lots of rocks on it is a sign that the deceased was dearly loved and dearly respected. Put rocks on the graves. There's a time to cast away stones, and there's a time to gather up stones. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Hugs at home are always appropriate. My wife and my kids can hug me anytime, all the time. 
We love hugs at home. Hugs at church are usually appropriate. Even brothers can hug in church. It's understood. It's appreciated. It's accepted. Hugging pretty girls is dangerous if you're a guy. When I hug a pretty girl, unless she's my wife, I got to go for the side saddle hug or the no body hug. No frontal hugs for pretty girls, not for me. Two guys hugging at Walmart is probably not the right time to hug. If you see me at Walmart, shake my hand. Don't come and give me a hug, guys. Please. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's also a time to gain and a time to lose. You know, sometimes progress is two steps forward and one step backwards. There's a time to gain, there's a time to lose. Verse 6, there's a time to keep and a time to throw away. Here's a biblical basis for garage sales right here. There's a time to keep and there's a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war in a time of peace. For in a world filled with sin and sinners, there will come a time when good men will have to take up arms and fight back evil men. It's inevitable. There's a time for war, and there's a time for peace. You see, there's a time, or there's a season for everything. And here's one of the keys to life. It's recognizing and enjoying and cooperating with whatever season that you're in. You know, it's been said a successful farmer knows that nature works for him only if he works with nature. I mean, try to sow when it's time to reap or try to reap when it's time to sow and you're destined for frustration. But if you're patient and if you're discerning of the season, you'll avoid a lot of life's futility and a lot of life's irritations. If you're single... Enjoy being single. You know, don't wish that you were, you were married. If you're married, relish the joys of married life. You know, people say marriage is like the screen door. There's flies on one side trying to get in. There's flies on the other side trying to get out. Just enjoy where you are. If you're single, enjoy it. If you're married, enjoy it. If it's time to build, work long hours. Take advantage of the work that you have. If it's time to relax, man, turn off your cell phone. Take a nap. Get some lemonade. Embracing the season reduces the stress. He says, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You are a child of time. You occupy time. But God has broken off a little chip of eternity, and he has planted it in every human heart so that no matter what time you're in, we will long for more. We long for eternity. As Solomon says in verse 11, God has put eternity in their hearts. Beyond time, we sense eternity and we all long to experience its reality. 
We were made for eternity. And we'll all get there in time. Philip Yancey writes this. He says, made for another home, made for eternity, we finally realize that nothing this side of timeless paradise will quiet the rumors of discontent. God gives us all things to enjoy, but if we get too attached to life under the sun, we are setting ourselves up for a letdown. Our home is eternity. We won't find true satisfaction until we arrive. You know, God is the master artist. In the meantime, God is the master artist. But you don't rush an artist. Each brush stroke is deliberate and important. This This is why he makes everything beautiful in his time. Verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Again, since real satisfaction is only found above the sun in spiritual things, how should we handle the tangible, temporal, terrestrial blessings? Well, we should enjoy them. That's what God gave them to us for. A good meal, an evening of family fun, the smell of a new car, a tax refund check. The opening of baseball season. Your your kid, you put him in soccer and he scores a goal. A bowl of ice cream at night before you go to bed. The new couch you've been wanting. These are all blessings from God. So enjoy them. Make the most of them. Relish them. You know, this is why Ecclesiastes is read by the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because it was a feast of celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles is in the fall, and it corresponds to the fall harvest. It's a time of thanksgiving and praise and celebration and enjoyment. Solomon is telling us to enjoy and be grateful for God's blessings. Just don't look to stuff under the sun for fulfillment, because it will disappoint you and it will disillusion you. How do you treat this life? You lighten up. You take it for what it is. You enjoy it, yes, but you don't expect too much out of it. It matters, maybe a little, but not much. You realize that what matters most in life is above the sun. Verse 14, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been and God requires an account of what is past. Not only is there an eternity, but God's work is eternal. It's permanent and it's final. And we are creatures of time, but God is timeless. He sits outside of time. He's above the timeline. He sees the end from the beginning and men will give an account to him of the deeds that they do. And of the life that they live. So your life does matter. One day you're going to answer to God. For how you spend it. And here's what really eats at the preacher. Verse 16. Moreover I saw under the sun. In the place of judgment. Wickedness was there. Man I looked to Washington. In the place of judgment. People who were making the laws. People who were on the bench. And there was wickedness there. And in the place of righteousness, 
Iniquity was there. And this really eats at him. In the words of the old saying, right is on the scaffold and wrong is on the throne. This is not the way it's supposed to be, Solomon is saying. And yet Solomon knows that one day in God's time, he will make everything beautiful. He will right all wrongs for he says, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Now the rest of the chapter addresses another frustration. The preacher knows that God exalted man above the animals. That he gave Adam dominion over the animal kingdom. And yet he concedes that there's very little difference between a man's life and an animal's life. I mean, every man eats and sleeps and lives and eventually dies like a dog. We buried our dog last year, buried him in the ground. One day, one day they're going to bury me in the ground. They've been saying they're going to bury me next to her. That's what they've been saying. I won't care. But we, we go through life, we, we live, we eat, we enjoy our life. But then in the end, we're no different than an animal. We just get put right back in the ground. We die like a dog. He's frustrated by this. He says, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them. That they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to the dust. The way some people treat their animals... You think the animals have the advantage. But he says they all, man, animals, they, they, they both die, they go back to dust. And, and then he adds here in verse 21, who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? Notice that's a question. He's not stating what he considers to be a fact here. He's just sort of asking the question, who knows? Who knows where the soul goes is what he's saying. He's expressing his, his, the vagueness and his own frustration, just looking at things under the sun, not factoring God in, not factoring revelation in, but just looking at things empirically under the sun, just kind of looking at things as, as they are. Who knows? You know, all we see is that the body dies, it goes back into the ground. Nobody sees the soul. So he's just saying, who knows? It's frustrating to him. Now, some folks take this verse to mean that the spirit of man goes upward. It goes back to God. It lives forever, whereas the soul of little rover ceases to exist. It just goes back to the ground and ends in the dust. And if you're attached to a dog, this can be upsetting. It is a possible interpretation. But just keep in mind, the preacher's point is simpler. He's just reflecting on the world's despair as to what it sees concerning the afterlife. It sees very little. You know, Christians, when you think about it, Christians believe that when the body dies, the spirit does live forever. But there's no empirical evidence to support that view. You know, the spirit can't be detected by a stethoscope. It doesn't show up in a blood sample or in a DNA test. Our hope in the afterlife is really a matter of faith, not scientific confirmation. 
The reason we believe in life after death is really only one reason. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose, we'll rise with him. This is why Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus taught the doctrine of the resurrection, and then he returned from the dead to validate its truth. But just looking at life under the sun, he's saying, who knows? He says, so I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? In other words, no one knows the future. So embrace today. Live in the moment. Enjoy your life. It's God's gift to you. That's why we call it the present. And that's where we'll end tonight.